Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, Perilous Times. Good afternoon, everyone. That was a beautiful rendition of one of my favorite hymns, and uh, everybody sounded great. I have a different kind of message. Um, I, at least I feel it's a different kind of message for me. It's, uh, it's not a positive message. I'm just going to give you a warning about that. Uh, I have struggled uh, over this message for a number of months. Uh, ever since I read the preliminary findings uh, of a report out of, uh, out of the UK, which was uh, a specific investigation done into um, persecution of Christians around the world. And as you can imagine by that title, it is not a positive subject. As I say, I've struggled with it. Um, but well, let me start off by asking you a question. Have you heard of persecution of Christians around the world? Have you heard of it often? Have you heard of it on the mainstream media? No. You have to be in the Christian community, right? You have to, uh, as my wife was reminding me, you know, go to the Voice of the Martyrs website or, or so on. You have to be plugged in somehow to the Christian community as a whole to hear about some of these things. This was, however, a report done to an unprecedented level of detail. And uh, I want to share with you some of the findings, um, just a small amount, because as you know, you know the British, we're, we can do reports really well, and they're very thick and lots of information in them. But I just wanted to share with you some of the, the key elements. And so please bear with me, and I, I hope that you will find it instructive uh, and encouraging, obviously, even though the material is not always positive. The report starts out, it says, it's now over five years since the London Times published the editorial entitled, entitled Spectators at the Carnage. It began in these terms. Across the globe, in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa, Christians are being bullied, arrested, jailed, expelled, and executed. Christianity is, by most calculations, the most persecuted religion of modern times. Yet, Western politicians until now have been reluctant to speak out in support of Christians in peril. And as I said, that's the opening statement of this report. And they were quoting from an article from five years ago. It's a statement to the final report of Bishop, Bishop Truro, uh, which is a, a diocese in England, the independent review of the British um, Foreign Secretary and Foreign and Commonwealth Office support for persecuted Christians. The report continues. That sums up succinctly the background to the work of this independent review, established by the Right Honorable Jeremy Hunt, MP, and uh, Her Majesty's Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, and chaired by the Bishop, Truro, uh, who is uh, Philip Mount Stephen. The core task was to map the extent and nature of global, Christian, uh, global persecution of Christians to assess the quality 
of the response from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and to make recommendations for changes in both policy and practice. So as I said, with your indulgence, I want to just kind of pick out some of the, the key areas because there's a lot in here that is relevant to us as we perhaps consider what's going on in our society here in the West. And you might think, well, obviously, we're in a different circumstance, right? We, things are not that bad for us here in the West. But we can see some very fundamental links between what has happened in other parts of the world and what could happen here. But before I dig into that a little bit, I obviously, uh, you know, there's an obvious element to this, which is we differ a little bit, don't we, from the broader Christian community and broader Christian practices. Um, so I, I don't really need to point that out to us. But nonetheless, we do have many things in common, don't we, with what we could call Sunday Christian tradition. Its practices differ a little bit. But what really stood out to me from this report, interestingly enough, is one of the core things that we proclaim, that Christians around the world proclaim, that Sunday tradition of Christians proclaim. And it is this single concept that we're very much united on, which is that Jesus is Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. We know that through his death and resurrection, he has become Lord of all. He is the King of kings. And we look forward to that moment in Revelation when he comes back as the king of kings. But he is already having that power. Remember what he told his disciples. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Jesus is Lord. And it's interesting. I want you to remember that because a little later in the, in the report, this is an element that is pointed out as to why Christians are so persecuted around the world. And so, while we may differ in many different areas, as indeed many Sunday Christian churches differ from one another, we have very core things in common. That Jesus is Lord and there is no other. We believe this as Christians because it's a fundamental principle. That Jesus is Lord and the government is not. Right? Whether it's a democracy or a dictatorship, Jesus is Lord. And what he tells us to do, and the Lord that he has given us to, to follow and to live by, is supreme over anything that man would tell us to do. Of course, his grace is always with us in that practice. And I do wish the Christians everywhere could understand you know, the richness of the holy days, the richness of the plan of salvation that is, as it is played out through the holy days of God. And, and I believe at some point they will. But while they, while they don't yet have that, we do have this element in common. Before I go into the report, I want to just also remind us of a scripture. All the way back in Psalm 116, verse 15. It says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. And so as we go through this report, obviously that might be in your mind, but I want to also ask you to keep one other thing in mind. Who 
who decides who is a saint of God? Do we decide? No. It's God that decides, isn't it? It is God that decides who is one of his saints. So getting back to the report, it says, for us to understand why this review was justified, we have to appreciate that today, Christian faith is primarily a phenomenon of the global south. And it is therefore primarily a phenomenon of the global poor. Despite the impression those in the West might sometimes have, to the contrary, the Christian faith is not primarily an expression of white Western privilege. If it were, then we could afford to ignore it. But unless we understand that it is primarily a phenomenon of the global south and of the global poor, we will never give this issue the attention it deserves. Is that shocking? That should be shocking. The Christianity is fundamentally a faith of the global south. So that means of the southern part of the, of the world. Now, that's not obviously the whole of Christianity. But we shouldn't, the report is telling us, have in mind that this is a now a predominantly western, northern religion. That should blow your mind. That there are more practicing Christians in that broader sense in the south of the globe than in the north. Secondly, it says, this particular focus is justified but because Christian persecution, like no other, is a global phenomenon. And it is also precisely because the Christian faith is truly a global phenomenon. Thus, Christian persecution is not limited to one context or challenge. It's a single global phenomenon with multiple drivers, as such as it deserves, and as such, it deserves special attention. And so later in the report, they get really technical, and they explain why in different regions, the persecution is of a certain type and of a certain way. It says, more specifically, it is certainly not limited to Islamic majority contexts. So when we think of Christians being persecuted, we'll say, well, that's going to happen in the Middle East, surely. And it does. But would you believe that Christians are persecuted in South America? I mean, that blows your mind. It blew my mind. It says, thirdly, Christian persecution is a human rights issue and should be seen as such. Freedom of religion or belief is perhaps the most fundamental human right because so many others depend on it. As this report argues, in the West, we tend to set one right against another. But in, su- in much of the world, this right is not in opposition to others, but rather is the linchpin upon which others defend- depend. And we in the West need to be awake to such dependencies and not dismiss the freedom of religion as an irrelevant to other rights. If freedom of religion or belief is removed, so many other rights are put into jeopardy too. It says, fourthly, this is not about special pleading for Christians but making up a significant deficit. If one minority is on the receiving end of 80% of religiously motivated discrimination, it is simply not, it is simply uh, not just that they should receive, or not just that they should receive so little attention. 80% of religious persecution is against Christians. That's sobering. 
And it says, and finally, to look at both historically and theologically, the Christian faith uh, has always been subversive. And this is what I was referring to at the beginning. Jesus is Lord is the earliest Christian creed. Those were not empty words. Rather, they explained why from the earliest days the Christian faith attracted persecution. To say that Jesus is Lord was to say that Caesar was not Lord, as he claimed to be. So from its earliest days, the Christian faith presented a radical challenge to any power that made absolute claims for itself. Christian faith should make no absolutist political claims for itself, but will always challenge those who do, which is precisely why the persecution of Christians is a global phenomenon and not a local or regional one. So what that's saying, and what I take away from that, is essentially that Christianity, because it says Jesus is Lord, anytime there is action or uh, laws against a certain practice of faith, and Christians don't agree with that according to what God has given, they're not going to follow that law. They're going to be outside the bounds of that community's normal behavior. And it's going to obviously cause tension and issues. The Christian faith will always present a radical challenge to any power that makes absolute claims for itself. And there are plenty of those in the world today. And there really are. And, you know, we sometimes think, well, you know, and the report talks about it, well, the Eastern Europe and Soviet Russia has gone away, and, and there was a lot of persecution of Christians in those days. And, in fact, I grew up with a, a pastor who worked in a, a specific ministry called the Slavic Gospel Ministry. And they would essentially sneak into Eastern Europe and, and try and help the Christians there. Some amazing stories of, of what they were able to do. And it's interesting. The Christianity is this force questioning the absolute power of any government or any other creed, or any other worldview, even, that is not morally justified by the word of God. Indeed, the Christian faith, faith's inherent challenge to abolitionist claims explains why it has been such a key foundation stone of Western democratic government, and explains, too, why we should continue to support it vigorously wherever it's under threat. So this is a governmental report that recognizes that Christianity is a foundational structure for Western government and Western uh, democratic structure. So, if that's true, if that is true, then Christianity is vital that it be supported and protected in the West itself. Right? They're saying that Christianity should be protected and supported because out there in the world it can help develop democratic environments, free societies. But if it declines in our society, then where will our society's democratic principles be based? Where do we have that basis? It goes without saying, the details of this report which I would encourage everybody to read, 
can be very grim. There is a lot of examples in there. And the existential threat that Christianity faces in much of the world differs greatly from what we have here. Of course it does. And there's a few examples that I'll touch on. But it's different. But we need to be under no illusion that it cannot happen here. That it cannot happen in the West. And indeed, that it hasn't begun to happen in the West. In fact, the inaction of the Western governments, if you think about it, to the kind of events that are going on around the world. And these are Western governments that have intelligence reports, right? That have much more data at their, that they control to make these decisions on. And Western governments have been silent. How much would they really then care to consider the concerns of Christians in their own country? Right? I think it stands to reason. And sadly, and interestingly enough, the commission did not include Western governments in its research which it should have done. It really should have. The report then asks this question, and then it, it tries to answer the question. Why focus on Christian persecution? And I have a, a, a quote I think Brian might have up here. It says, research consistently indicates that Christians are the most widely targeted religious community. Furthermore, the evidence suggests that acts of violence and other intimidation against Christians are becoming more widespread. The reporting period revealed an increase in the severity of anti-Christian persecution in parts of the Middle East and Africa. The vast scale of the violence is, and its perpetrators declared an intent to eradicate the Christian community has led to, the, to several par uh, parliamentary declarations in recent years that the faith group has suffered genocides according to the definition adopted by the UN. So the volume, the amount of persecution is now being considered genocide. And that, of course, harkens back to events like in the Balkans, the Balkans War and the genocide against Muslims. That got lots of coverage, didn't it? Oddly enough. But because Christianity is spread out around the globe and these other factors that they dig into, there's hardly any thought or consideration to this. It says, against this backdrop, academics, journalists, and religious leaders, both Christian and non-Christian, have stated, as Cambridge University Press puts it, the global persecution of Christians is an urgent human rights issue that remains underreported. An op-ed piece in the Washington Post stated, Persecution of Christians continues, but it rarely gets a mention in the Western media. Even many churchmen in the, the West, uh, in the West turned a blind eye. Journalist John L. Allen wrote uh, in The uh, Spectator, The global war on Christians remains the greatest story never told of the early 21st century. While government leaders such as the UK Prime Minister Theresa May and German Chancellor Angela Merkel have publicly acknowledged the scale of the persecution. Concerns have centered on whether their public comments and policies have given sufficient weight to the topic. I'm just going to jump down here to another, another element. 
and in quote two that we, I think Brian should have on the screen, evidence shows that not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also its increasing severity. In some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide, according to that adopted by the UN. The eradication of Christians and other minorities on pain of the sword or other violent means was revealed to the specific and stated objective of extremist groups in Syria, Iraq, Egypt, North uh, East Nigeria, and the Philippines. An intent to erase all evidence of Christian presence was made by the removal of crosses, destruction of church buildings, and other church symbols. The killing and abduction of clergy represented a direct attack on the church's structure and leadership. Where these and other incidents meet the tests of genocide, state parties to the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Crime of Genocide have a duty not only to bring perpetrators to justice, but also to prevent attempts at genocide. Now, I mean, I'm hoping that this report will motivate these parties. But so far, nothing has happened. And it, okay, the report's just been made final, but it's, it was been out in draft form for several months. Let me ask you a question. Who's gonna take those steps to intervene, to protect, to try and help Christians in persecuted areas. Who's going to do that? Well, the only people that could possibly do that are the Western world. And the Western world is not going to do it. They're just not. Because the Western world isn't Christian. It's just not. Ken, you have a point? In, in persecution? Yeah. So you're talking about it in, in Jewish persecution? Is that what you're saying? No. Are you, are you saying to include the Jews also in, in the persecution? Yeah, I mean, obviously they are a persecuted group. But if you listen to, in fact, there's a quote here from a, a Jewish scholar uh, and, and rabbi, Christians way outstrip persecution uh, of the Jews by an order of magnitude, which is, is shocking to also think about. Yeah. The report continues. It says, the main impact of such genocidal acts against Christians is internal displacement and exodus. Christianity now faces the possibility of being wiped out in parts of the Middle East where its roots go back the furthest. In Palestine, Christian numbers are below 1.5%. In Syria, the Christian population has declined from 1.7 million in 2011 to below 450,000. And in Iraq, largely through the ethnic cleansing of ancient Christian communities from the Nineveh Plains, Christian numbers have slumped from 1.5 million before 2003 to below 120,000 today. Do that numbers. Largely from ethnic cleansing. And, you know, we, we did hear about, uh, I think it's the Yazidis and, and so on, at some point a few years ago, and they're included in that number. But even just half of those individuals were not an exodus, but an execution. We are talking about massive numbers of people. 
people around the world. Christianity is at risk of disappearing, representing a massive setback for polarity, as it says in the region, um, which has been a key for security and stability in the region for hundreds of years. And I read another part that talks about that the fact that religions have been able in these places to get along, that Christianity and Islam and so on were able to be next to each other and cause no, no harm to one another, has been a stabilizing factor. It has limited extremism. It's limited terrorism from moving into those areas. And now that is also going away. Should be a reminder, shouldn't it, of the powerful impact that Christians can make in a community just by being here and how important it is for us to remain faithful for ourselves and our community. In its 2017 Persecuted and Forgotten Report on Christian Persecution, ACN stated, and this is an, another quote here, in terms of the number of people involved, the gravity of the crimes committed and their impact, it is clear that the persecution of Christians is today worse than at any time in history. And that's a Christian organization. And they're saying it's worse than any time in history. So when we read the Bible and we read about the persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea and out into the Roman world, it is worse than that. An incredible statement. It says, given the scale of persecution, the response of the media and the Western governments has come under increasing criticism. And, and here's this quote Ken I was telling you about. Former Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs told the House of Lords, the persecution of Christians throughout the much of the Middle East, the sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, and elsewhere is one of the crimes against humanity of our time. And I'm appalled at the lack of protest that is evoked. He said, this, echo, uh, this echoes the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, forward to all. He said, does anyone hear our cry? How many atrocities must we endure before the world or before someone comes to our aid? Reminds us, doesn't it, of Revelation? Chapter 6 and verse 9. He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth. Reminds us very much of that. Given the scale of persecution of Christians today, indications that it is getting worse and that, it impacts it, and that its impact involves the decimation of some of the faith's oldest groups and most enduring communities. The need for governments to give increasing priority and specific targeted support to this faith community is not only necessary, but increasingly urgent. Entire communities are about to be wiped out. Entire communities are Christians. And I, I still, this sounds bad, but I feel that if 
an entire community of Muslims was about to be wiped out, we might hear about it in the news. Don't you think? Especially if their attackers were Christian in the nominal sense, because obviously no real Christian could do those things. But instead, what do we hear in our media? Nonsense. Nonsense. Political stuff that doesn't mean anything. Meanwhile, this genocide is going on around the world. I appreciate your patience. I just want to jump into a few more, just a few more specifics. And I think they're important for us as we kind of look at what might be on the horizon in the Western world and as the, uh, the increase of tensions and organized activities against Christian, Christians and Christian churches in the West. It says, failure to belong to the majority religion or ideology of a society, especially when religious allegiance is recorded on identity papers, can also result in a limitation of access to employment and educational opportunity. And that sounds right out of the scriptures, doesn't it? No one could buy or sell unless they have the mark of the power that says how you can live your life. That's right out of Revelation. Human right to freedom of religion or belief can only be said to be fully enjoyed, enjoyed when observance can freely take place in public and in private and when belonging to any particular religion or changing your religion or beliefs does not affect your life chances an opportunity for economic and social advancement in society. Violent persecution exists in many forms. Firstly, there are mass violence, which regularly expresses itself through the bombing of churches, and ha uh, as has been in the case of countries such as Egypt, Pakistan, Indonesia, whereby the perpetrators raise levels of fear amongst Christian community and attempt to suppress the community's appetite to practice its right to public expression of freedom and freedom of religion. State militaries attacking minority communities which practice a different faith to the country's majority also constitutes a violent threat to Christian communities, such as in the uh, several different regions um, of, the, of the Sudan. The torture, oh, and also Myanmar. The torture of Christians is widespread in the Democratic Republic, uh, People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, and Eritrean prisons and beatings in police custody are widely reported in India. But India is an ally to the West, right? I mean, my, the company I work for, we, we have a partner company that does work for us in India. But there are several states in India where there's systematic persecution of Christians. These violent manifestations of persecution can be perpetrated by the state, as has been reported in international jurists in the case of the murders taking place within the DPRK prisons, as well as allegedly in the kidnapping of, a, of Pastor Raymond Ko in Malaysia. These acts are also perpetrated by non-state actors, such as Muslim extremists who systematically target and kidnap Christian girls in Pakistan and in the recent murder of Pastor Lida Milana in Colombia by guerrilla paramilitary groups. 
But in South America and different places, there are Christians trying to protect communities of people against drug lords and, and just general thugs, violent individuals. And they too are obviously enduring that persecution from them. Militant vigilante groups which patrol their neighborhoods. So these are not government agents. These are just people in a community that decide the Christians are bad and that we need to take care of these people. They patrol their neighborhoods looking for those who do not conform to society's religious norms, also pose a violent threat to Christians again in India. Mob violence has become a regular occurrence in many states in India, leading to beatings, forced conversion from Christianity to Hinduism. When I, when I grew up and I learned about Hinduism, you know, and there was kind of the history there, the British Empire in India, it was always presented as somewhat of a, like a Buddhist faith, like a very peaceful kind of existence, coexist with others. And it's shocking to me that people are being forced to convert to Hinduism from Christianity. The edge of the sword. Sexual violence against women and murder is also common. Social persecution is often structural in nature and harder to detect. But it's the type of persecution which the majority of persecuted Christians are experiencing because it's so far-reaching in every area of life. And this is the insidious part that we need to look out for. Let me, be, let me be blunt. But if you live in a community where it's no longer acceptable to believe certain things that are fundamental to Christian ways of life, such as marriage is one man and one woman, well, then you could be subject to these structural and harder to detect kinds of persecution. Maybe you don't get that job. Maybe you're shuttled out of your job. Maybe you don't, you know, be, you're not allowed in certain public events. Maybe your neighbors are no longer your friends. There's all kinds of ways in which this can be starting to happen in our communities. For instance, the private lives of Christians are closely regulated in the DPRK with widespread state propaganda attempting to regulate the thought lives of, of citizens. In countries such as Saudi Arabia and the Maldives, citizens are not entitled to hold Christian meetings, even in the privacy of their own homes. In countries such as, as, such as Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Taj, uh, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan, the churches are tightly regulated with the freedom of religion or belief severely inhibited as churches are regularly raided. Both in China and, and Tajikistan, Reports of churches being forced to turn minors away from services continuously un to undermine the right of parents to pass on their religion to their children. I mean, didn't we just hear Art talk about that? You shall teach it to your children. And they should teach it to your children. And they know that if we do that, then it continues the faith. And so, you can't bring your children to church. Insidious. The suppression of public expressions of Christianity is further curbed through discriminatory behavior and harassment by bureaucratic means. This has included the denial of permits and licenses which are required by law for a church to be built in, in countries such as Egypt. 
although it does go on to state that Egypt has made some changes in there. Beyond churches themselves, in the community sphere, government officials treating Christians with contempt, hostility, or suspicion on the basis of their faith is experienced regularly. Along with the displacement of Christian leaders in Latin America, the most extreme cases, community rulings force Christians to leave their village. This type of ruling by indigenous communities in India and Latin America is regularly reported. So what that means is that the community just gets together and says, you're not welcome here. You're a Christian and we don't believe in that. You're just, you're not welcome amongst us. This is very chilling to me because it happens here. And you may not realize it happens here because it's pretty clever. But it happens here in cases that we have heard about where Christian bakers, right, have been sued by somebody deliberately coming into their store and setting them up, essentially. And they will not make a cake or whatever it may be for a, a gay couple. There's plenty of places they could go. What's the natural consequence if they lose that case? It's a civil case, and the people are suing for damages, and so that, that baker is now at risk of losing his work, his place of work, and losing his house. If that's not a Western version of being shuttled out of the community and being forced to leave the village, then I don't know what is. This same spirit of persecution is here. It's a different way, but it is here. This report goes on to state that one of the reasons for lack of action on the part of the Western world in the global genocide and persecution of Christians is, and I quote, in the Western mind, uh, in the Western mindset, freedom of religion or belief is often perceived to be in opposition to other rights, notably rights around sexual identity. So, what that tells me is that the sexual identity concerns that are really extremist sexual identity concerns of a small minority of people in the West trumps the millions of Christians being persecuted around the world. Oh, well, we don't want to upset these folks here by appearing to support Christians. Because those Christians are bad. We should be under no illusions that we live under those same governments, those same Western governments. So how easily can they turn a blind eye to Christianity and the persecution of Christianity in our own countries? The report goes on to give this final warning. On this point, it says, the impact of violating a person's religious freedom frequently means a violation of other key human rights, such as freedom of assembly or association, freedom of expression for cases where religious manif manifestation is denied, the right to life, the right to freedom from torture. And so what they're arguing here is that in these communities, in these countries, where Christians are persecuted and the Christians have their religious rights removed, they're either leading to, or the, core, the, the fundamental cause of that is because they want to limit 
the right of assembly, limit the right of freedom that perhaps that community may have enjoyed. What's that going to say for us? In an article in the American Conservative, a strong case was made that for real Christians, Christians that believe the word of God, that believe the law of God, that believe that they should follow God's law, that he gave it to us for good, for healthy relations with ourselves, between ourselves, between those in the world, that believe the word of God on moral issues. It says that hiding in plain sight will no longer be an option. As Christians in the West, we've been protected. We've lived almost literally in a bubble, haven't we? We've lived in a bubble of protection somewhat for a period of time and in a specific place. But we need to be prepared for what may come. What may come in our lifetime. And in doing so, get back to the real reason of why we first believed. Why we are Christians. You know, because I think about the people that are enduring persecution around the world. They have an opportunity, don't they? Oh, uh, yeah, I like Hinduism. Sure, I'll go with that. Right? If they're just about following a creed because they want to just be good or it's a good moral code to follow, then man, maybe they could switch whenever that threat comes around. But is that why we believe? No. That's not why we believe. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus starts talking to his disciples about the mission he was about to send them on. Sending them out two by two. But then about halfway through, he starts to talk to all the Christians, I think, of every age. And in verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Not getting it the other way around, right? We need to be as harmless as doves. But be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And you know, we know from history, we know from the persecution of the, of the early church, and of course, now we know from reports of like what I've just quoted, Christianity has had persecution throughout the ages. But right here when Jesus was telling the disciples this, they had not known it yet. This was going to be something new. Jesus had not yet died, and he had not been resurrected, and the pouring of the Holy Spirit had not yet come out. And so he's warning them, get ready. This faith is not for the faint of heart. You have to be really serious about following this faith because this is our tradition. We've lived in a very short period of time and a very small bubble. But this is the tradition of the Christian church of persecution and suffering. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how, how or what you will speak for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks 
in you. And he says, now brother will deliver up brother to death. That's happening around the world. Christians are often outed by relatives. And they're hiding from these gangs of people. Tell them where we are or we're going to kill you too. That's where they are. A brother will deliver a brother to death. And father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. If we endure, if we can hold on. You know, and maybe we have this notion that, well, if persecution comes on me, it'd be sure nice if it's over quick. Right? But there's no guarantee of that. Of course there isn't. So we have to be prepared to endure, however long that is. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's places to hide. That's what he's saying. There is places to hide. And maybe we have to... (laughs) Maybe we have to do that at some point. I hope we don't. But maybe we do. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant to be like his master. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for they... There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And that's encouraging, isn't it? That's encouraging that regardless of what happens to the saints, to the Christians around the world, and God knows who they are, he will reveal their story. He will make it known. There will be a judgment. And then he comes to this, and it's the massive challenge of our age. And it's harder now than it was 10 years ago. And it'll be harder in 10 years than it is today. He says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. That is not easy. That is not easy. Speak it out in public. Be bold. Deliver the truth. And that's not for just the pastor, it's not just for the speakers, that's not just for the individuals that you may see behind the pulpit. It's every one of us. Being bold, speaking the light, sharing it in our community, regardless of what comes. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. We might get some attention if we did that. There's a crazy guy in Matt's neighborhood. Oh, it's Matt. And he's on his roof. And he's yelling. But we get the point. That we should be sharing the truth of God while we have a chance. While maybe some will listen. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Are not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, 
you are of more value than many sparrows. We love that passage, don't we? But what is that value? What is the value? What's the sum of that value? It's the life of his begotten son. That's how valuable we are. Because the father was willing to spend his life to gain ours. He says, therefore confess, and therefore whoever confesses me before man, him I also confess before my father who is in heaven. Think about that. How sweet will that sound when you hear Jesus' voice? That he is mine. She is mine. And we are with him forever and all of eternity. How sweet the sound. And how awful the sound if he denies us before his Father in heaven. So we must not deny him. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I think we know that now, don't we? through all the history that we have of our church. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What cross has he asked you to bear? What burden has he asked you to now carry? Is it something new? Is it a new thing that you now have to do? A new burden that you have to carry for him? I don't know what that is. But in each of our lives, he's saying, You have to pick up your burden. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. What is that for you? It may be different from everyone else and from me. But we have to know what that is and follow him. He who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Are we carrying that cross? I just want to close, if I could, real quickly. Because I think it's appropriate, the Apostle Paul was, in many ways, he felt like he was speaking of his days, but maybe he's speaking of ours. He said in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, and do this. You know, pick up that burden, pick up the cross, pick up what we are supposed to carry for our Father and for our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And do this, knowing the time, that it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Day of the Lord, perhaps. Maybe it's soon. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. In the day. In the light. Where we are supposed to declare what Jesus has told us. As in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. 